This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. There is a word that's entered our lexicon rather recently, and it still puzzles me, and not just grammatically. The word is adulting, and you've probably seen it on Twitter as a favorite of millennials. This is a word that's slang for doing something responsible or grown up. But the way it's used is often reflective of a strange phenomenon that being an adult is somehow surprising or even noteworthy. One lexicographer even noted that a big factor in the creation of this term in the first place is, in fact, the delayed development of millennials. We see a lot of this in younger Americans, many of whom will delay marriage or meaningful careers in favor of never-ending video games in mom's proverbial basement, or maybe not so proverbial. And that really poses a huge problem, not just for the young adults, but for all of us. What went wrong and can the problem be fixed? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Everett Piper, contributing columnist for The Washington Times, former president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and author of the new book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. Dr. Piper, so great to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Janet, and it's always an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Oh, it's great to have you here. Congratulations on your book, and you're still calling out the snowflakes. I think this is tremendous. A lot of people remember <laughs> Not a Daycare, and you have been one of those really strong voices saying, listen, kids, you got to grow up. How do you think that some of these younger Americans are failing to grow up? You mentioned Not a Daycare, so let's go back to that. As you know, and you and I have talked about about it on your show frequently, In 2017, I called out the students on my campus, as well as those across the United States, and I said, the college is not a daycare. It's a place for you to learn. It's not a place for you to feel safe. I'm going to challenge you. I'm not going to comfort you. I don't expect you to come to my institution and feel that you can demand safe spaces and start throwing down trigger warnings every time somebody has an idea that you don't like. And as a result of me saying that in 2017, um, as you know, that went viral. I was the college president that had the audacity to call out my students and tell them this isn't a daycare. Well, in that book, I actually said what's taught today in the classroom won't stay there. What's happening at Berkeley and Brown isn't going to stay at Berkeley and Brown because these kids are going to graduate. They're going to enter into our corporations and into our Congress and into our courts, and they're going to bring these selfish ideas. They're going to bring this this self-absorption and this narcissism with them, and they're going to start imposing it upon all of culture. And here we are today. We've got the cancel culture because Berkeley and Brown graduates now work at Google and Facebook and Twitter and the Major League Baseball Association, and they're deciding what you and I can read and what you and I can actually consume as, um, as citizens of the United States, what we can consume intellectually. So here we are. And in my new book, Grow Up, I'm actually saying, you know, there's a solution to this problem. And the solution is maybe start teaching some good ideas rather than this garbage. Maybe we ought to think about teaching, oh, let's say, 
natural law rather than narcissism? How about self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our Creator rather than self-absorption and self-actualization? Maybe if the problem is garbage in, garbage out, maybe the solution is goodness in and goodness out. Maybe if we return to the time-tested truths that have been around for a couple thousand years, we could actually have a nation of adults rather than a nation of perpetual adolescents. Well, what a concept. I I would support that 100%. But of course, when you're talking about these millennials and now Gen Zers who are coming out of our colleges and universities with this kind of mentality, the natural question to go back to is, but it was adults who allowed this to proliferate. It wasn't just those in the educational system, but it was their parents. I mean, if you have people languishing in mom's basement until the age of 35 playing video games, that's to be blamed also on the parents, is it not, and the adults who have fomented this problem? Oh, absolutely. And my book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe But It's Good, is not intended just for the millennial. It's not intended for the 21-year-old or just the 31-year-old. It's intended for everyone, the 41-year-old and the 51-year-old and the 71-year-old, because you just nailed it. Helicopter parenting is just as responsible for this as anything. In fact, I would argue there are three entities in any healthy culture that take responsibility for inculcating the ideas into their progeny. And those entities would be the teacher, the preacher, and the parent. So if teachers would start teaching truth rather than feelings, and if preachers would stop imbibing the Kool-Aid and actually start challenging their congregations rather than affirming them, maybe confront sin rather than have a conversation about sin, and if parents would act like parents rather than trying to be their kid's best friend and actually discipline their kids rather than coddling them and hovering around them and protecting them, you know, how many times did your dad or your mom tell you, no pain, no gain? Yes. How many times were you told, you know, get back on the horse? How many times were you told that life isn't easy? Life isn't supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be good, and there's a huge difference. And that's the point of my book. Well, right. And and those of us who have parents like that or had parents like that have a hard time understanding parents who are not like that. But we're, we're obviously, we're surrounded by them. I know that every time I got on an airplane, I'm surrounded by parents like that as their kids do whatever they want and kick my chair for the entire flight. But that's another interview. Uh, when we talk about, though, the ideology that is keeping so many young Americans from even wanting to grow up, how would you define that ideology on the one hand, yes, it is about safe spaces, and I don't want anybody to hurt my feelings, and I don't want to take responsibility. But isn't it natural for kids to want to mature and grow up? I mean, what is stifling that? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, let's go back to the issue of uh, love and tolerance. I mean, we've brainwashed one generation after another to elevate tolerance as the most superior virtue of all of Western civilization. Yeah. But really, love and tolerance are not synonyms, they're antonyms. They're antithetical to one another. Tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance says, I don't care about you, I don't like you, I don't love you, I could care less what you do, I'll tolerate you. Whereas Christian charity, love, is a superior virtue, and it says, I care deeply about you, enough to stand in your way and tell you to stop. I didn't send my wife an I tolerate you card on Valentine's Day, and there's a reason for that. It wouldn't have ended very well. So we've, we've taught one generation after another that somehow if you just tolerate another individual, that's the highest virtue, and that is synonymous with love. And it's not. And in fact, 
the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he doesn't tolerate us in our dysfunction. Yes. There's actually a consequence for misbehavior, for sin, and that consequence is supposed to wake us up and recognize that confession and repentance is the only solution, not coddling us. So maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's why students are comfortable, because they haven't been challenged. Well, right. I agree with you there. You tell this one story, for example, in the book that really resonated with me. It was about a kid who plays video games all the time, and then his parents gave him a car, and he didn't even want to go out and drive the car. He still wanted his parents to cart him around. And it's interesting because my kids have talked about friends of theirs who are that way. They don't even want to get their license. I remember chomping at the bit at 15. I can't wait until the day I turn 16. I get to finally drive a car. And this generation, a lot of those kids... They're not interested, and I can't wrap my head around that, but that's indicative of what you're talking about, the broader problem. It is, and uh, I, like you, I, I can't imagine not wanting to get your first driver's license and get your first car and have the freedom that comes with that, because freedom for you and me was of a, a higher value, a higher virtue than safety. Yes. But it seems today that because we've coddled and comforted and we've... Uh, we've, we've, we've um, We've affirmed these students and these kids as they've asked for safety, safe spaces, rather than a challenging life, one that results in maturity, that we've actually allowed them to stagnate. Yeah, you're right about that. And I think you've hit upon something very significant when you talk about our generation being more interested in freedom than safety. What happens to a country like ours when that is reversed as it has been? And I think you're right in pointing this out with some of these younger generations. There's a lot more to talk about. We'll pause for a break. Grow up. Life isn't safe, but it's good by Dr. Everett Piper. We'll come back with Dr. Piper after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the Word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. 
You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it is always great to have Dr. Everett Piper with us. He always nails it when it comes to analyzing this culture and putting it in context and having a wonderful way of analyzing it from a Christian perspective. He's out with a great book, Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. Dr. Piper, you were talking before the break, and I want to go back to this for a moment, that when we have a generation or multiple generations, as it were, that values safety and safe spaces over freedom, what came to mind is the greatest generation. And I will sometimes make this comment to my husband and I'll see some Gen Z or doing something or another. And I'll say, can you imagine that our grandparents at the same age were storming the beaches of Normandy? And, mm-hmm. and isn't that an indication of where we are as a culture? There was a sense back in the greatest generation that you, you did what was necessary for your country, that life was about not just you, but about a greater good. It, it terrifies me somewhat to think about this generation possibly being called up to a world war, and I pray it never happens. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're spot on. And let's just take the way our country has reacted to the COVID crisis. Um, if, if you don't think our enemies have been watching us. China's been watching. North Korea's been watching. Iraq and Iran have been watching us. And they now know that all they have to do to bring the West to its knees, to bring America into submission, is just to scare us that we might get sick. Uh, Tell them they might get a disease. Tell them they might get a very extreme form of the flu, and they'll do anything you tell them to do. We have bowed the knee safety rather than rather than fighting for freedom it's as if we've taken patrick henry's famous phrase give me liberty or give me death and turned it on its ear that i fear death so take my liberty Mm. this is an attitude of a child it's not the attitude of a mature adult who will fight and i think it goes back to the biblical principle of as iron sharpens iron let one man sharpen another that implies friction that implies heat that implies sparks will fly. Without dissonance, without disagreement, without some discomfort in life, none of us ever wants to grow. If we can just sit in mom's basement and feel comfortable our entire life, there are a lot of people that will accept that and never experience the freedom and the liberty and the beauty, the goodness that's intended for the human being because we never bothered to even try. Nobody pushed us. We didn't have a coach. We didn't have a parent. We didn't have a teacher who said, no, that's not good enough. Safety isn't good enough. Get out of here and go try something different and better. Pay attention to what I'm telling you. A coach, a good coach will say this. If you're not going to come to practice and do what I tell you to do, then you're not going to get in the game. And all of us who are athletes understand the challenge that came there and how we improved as the result. Well, that's right. You need the challenge in order to grow and mature. And and again, we go back to this issue of personal responsibility, which you stress in your book. How do we see the benefits of developing responsibility pay off in the long run? So, for example, if you're sitting down with a younger American who wants that safe space, 
How do you persuade that particular individual that, listen, life is hard and you will have to work and you will face some very daunting circumstances in your life? Everybody does. But that's an important part of you becoming an adult. What would you say to that particular person? Well, maybe the way to wake somebody up who's uh, stuck in this complacency, in this selfish mindset, stuck in perpetual uh, adolescence, um, childishness, is to do what Jesus did and ask some good questions. Uh, Jesus often woke his people up, his adversaries up, by not arguing with them, not lecturing them per se, but by just asking a good rhetorical question. I mean, their minds were closed, they were lazy in their thinking, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were too legalistic, the the Romans were too uh, hedonistic, so Jesus basically just asked them good questions. Why do you call me Lord? Whose face is on this coin? Do you want to throw the first stone? Maybe the way to expose the broken worldview of somebody who's stuck in that worldview is to ask them good questions that actually result in the branch that they're sitting on actually falling down because they have to saw away at that branch because it's a self-refuting worldview. For example, the critical race theory mess that we're in right now. Ask the millennial. Do you really think we ought to start judging people by the content, excuse me, by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character? And then be quiet and watch that worldview implode. (laughs) Ask them good questions that expose the lie that they're so comfortable in, and it will wake them up. Well, that's genius. I think that that's a great way to do that kind of Socratic method. But the problem is, as you know, when you have, as you've said before, a problem with the teacher, the preacher and the parent doing the opposite. Many people feel a little bit hopeless about the future of the country because they say, uh, you know, the problem of relativism, which you've touched upon in your book and the lack of a Christian worldview. It's as if and, and you've talked about this too, Dr. Piper. It's as if people can't think they haven't been trained to think they they are not rational in many cases. It's all coming from emotions and passions and and what have you. And it's hard to deal with people. Uh, You probably run into this a lot where you will talk to a particular person and think, I'm not even going to waste my breath. I can't even get to square one with this person. What do you do then when when you have a populace that is failing to think? Well, again, it's post-modernity. It's the cancel culture. It's perpetual narcissism. Uh, we're given over to the reprobate, reprobate mind. The Apostle Paul warned us of this. Yep. He, M. Scott Peck called it the diabolical human mind. A Graham Walker, a friend of mine, a scholar that uh, uh, from Notre Dame University, he called it the pathology of the intellect. That we're, we all are incapable of thinking when we start worshiping the created more than, with the, than the creator. Yes. So this is a problem that's been going on since the beginning of time. Again... I really think the way to expose people who refuse to think is to not argue with them, but to ask them a question that forces them to admit, at least emotionally, that they've got a problem. Expose it, For example, radical tolerance. Are you going to tolerate my intolerance? That exposes the lie that they live. You say that you believe in love. Well, is love synonymous with sex? Do you have sex with everybody you love? Well, I hope not. I hope you don't have sex with everybody you love, because that would be a problem. Love isn't the same as sex. It's not synonymous with sex. And once we point these things out by some good, simple questions, it breaks through their emotional walls. 
You know, when I was in grad school, there was this concept called the balance of challenge and support. If there's too much challenge, people won't grow because they feel intimidated. But if there's too much support, they also won't grow because there's no need to. Our culture today is providing way too much support and almost no challenge. There has to be an optimal balance of challenge and support for anyone to grow. And that's the formula that we need to recover if we want people to grow up. Well, we do. And and the recovery of absolute truth, uh, this kind of goes along with what you've said about postmodernism and relativism. We have to get back to this idea that is absolutely the case that there is objective truth aside from, quote unquote, my truth. And I think you're right. I do think you have to start somewhere and ask these kinds of questions. The other thing that you talk about, though, is getting out of this cycle of dependency and narcissism. And you stress the importance of work and of giving of your time and abilities. Can you speak to that issue a little bit? Because I think that that's really important. Um, well, work is hard. Okay. Yes. So many of these things that I talk about in the book are just so, they're just, just common sense. Yeah. They're basically, they're basically grounded in the age old axioms. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going, no pain, no gain. In other words, if you don't work, you're not going to achieve anything. Um, as iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. A stitch in time saves nine. All of these truths that are reflected in those time tested axioms have been around for a while because they're true. So this issue of work, if you claim to be woke and you care so much about other people, then I have a question for you. What are you doing? What are you doing to help others rather than focus on yourself all the time? Why are you talking about me and mine and us versus them all the time rather than stop this perpetual self uh, navel gazing, this navel gazing of of perpetual narcissism. Why don't you get out and do something rather than sit around and complain about it all the time? These are some of the questions that I think we should confront our culture with. And I do think it can wake some people up. I agree with you. I think that's important. You have a chapter where you talk about the selfies and all the you know people who've been injured doing selfies or died doing selfies falling off cliffs and things like that. And it is really analogous to Narcissus, who was you know fascinated with his own reflection and getting into this discussion of narcissism. When you are the focus of your world, your truth, your ideals, what you want, what's best for you, then how in the world do you even keep a, a university, as you say, or unity or e pluribus unum. And that's what it seems we most desperately need in this country right now. We can't come together as a unified country when everybody is fascinated with themselves. Yeah. Black Lives Matter, intersectionality, critical race theory, LGBTQ, uh, identity politics, all of it is self-centered. It's all about me. Yeah. You offended me. You compromise my safe space. You have made me feel bad. I don't feel loved. All of this is about me, me, me. It's, it's the class conflict of Marcuse who imposed uh, neo-Marxism on our culture. He, we weren't win- they weren't winning. Marxism wasn't winning, as you well know, with the bourgeoisie proletariat conflict. So they created another conflict. But it's a conflict that's always focused on self. I deserve my pound of flesh. I'm a victim, and therefore I'm going to take vengeance on those who had more privilege than me. Does this sound familiar? Yes. This is a self-centered 
ideology, and it's an ideology of a child, not an adult. Well, you're right. And that's exactly why people need to check out your book. It's called Grow Up. Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good by Dr. Everett Piper. So good to talk to you, Dr. Piper. Great job on your book. And it was wonderful to have you back. Thank you, Janet. Thank you for being here. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. A Christian wedding photographer is challenging New York state law, which attempts to force her to celebrate so-called same-sex weddings or face huge damages and fines, the revocation of her business license, or even up to a year in jail. Emily Carpenter is represented in this new suit filed in U.S. District Court in the Western District of New York by Alliance Defending Freedom. And we're going to get more details now from ADF legal counsel Brian Nyhart. Brian, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Tell us a little bit about the New York state law, this public accommodations law, I guess laws that ban sexual orientation discrimination uh, as the basis of this lawsuit uh, and, the, you know, the, the terrible things that it would do to Emily and her business. What, what exactly do these laws say? Well, artists should be free to choose the messages that they promote. And Emily is a photographer in Western New York who uses her wedding photography to celebrate her view uh, uh, her religious views about marriage, that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. And just like a, a painter who uses a paintbrush to create a painting or an organist who plays the organ to produce music, Emily uses her camera to create beautiful images of uh, wedding ceremonies between one man and one woman. Um, but New York's law actually uh, forbids Emily from operating her business and creating artwork consistent with her religious beliefs. In fact, New, York law, New York's law require her to uh, create photographs celebrating same-sex weddings because she already celebrates uh, weddings between one man and one woman. Right. And as you mentioned, if, if Emily refuses to do this, New York can impose ridiculous penalties on her. It can fine her up to $100,000. Uh, it can throw her in jail for up to a year, and it can impose other penalties that would really that would r- ruin her business. And so Emily has filed this this lawsuit to protect her First Amendment right to choose the messages that she promotes and how she operates her business. Yeah. So basically, are they saying that if you fail to do what they've prescribed that Emily ought to do, which is to treat uh, homosexual couples the same way she would treat male female couples, then she actually is discriminatory, even though, as you guys point out, she serves everybody. It's not a matter of picking the people out and saying, I don't want to give you any services because I don't like the way you are. It's a matter of the message she's conveying. Is that correct? Yes, you're exactly right. That's a really important point here. Emily serves all people. She just cannot promote all messages. And what New York's law does is two things. First, it requires her to photograph marriages that violate her religious beliefs and to use her artwork to celebrate ideas that violate her religious beliefs. Uh, But secondly, um, New York actually prohibits Emily from explaining her religious beliefs on her website or directly to prospective customers. And the the First Amendment allows people to advocate for ideas uh, in the marketplace of ideas, but New York's law essentially puts 
puts a gag order on beliefs like Emily's and, and, and prohibits her from explaining her religious beliefs about marriage in the public sphere. That's insane. So she can't put anything up on her own business website explaining her Christian views on marriage. How is that in the purview of the state of New York to regulate what she can say? We have a First Amendment. Well, that's exactly right. And, and New York's law violates the First Amendment. New York's law basically uh, 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 dictates what is acceptable to say and what is not acceptable to say. But Emily has a sincerely held religious belief that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. And, and part of the reason that she runs her business is she wants to celebrate that idea uh, with the couples that are her clients and to promote that idea out in public. Uh, but New York's law uh, pr- prohibits her from doing this. And as you mentioned, that, that does violate the First Amendment because as Americans, we are free to, uh, to uh, promote our views in the public. Yeah, that's right. Now, hasn't New York already punished some other business owners for Christian views on marriage? I mean, have they come down on other people? That's correct. New York has already uh, uh, imposed fines on uh, business owners with religious beliefs like Emily's. And that's why uh, this case is is so important, and it shows the threat that Emily faces on a daily basis. Uh, New York has already said that it believes that that Emily's religious beliefs, that marriage is between one man and one woman, essentially violates its law. And uh, and that that by itself is unconstitutional. The government uh, needs to – has a requirement – uh, as a duty to respect Emily's beliefs about marriage, but it has already shown that it doesn't respect that belief, and that's why this lawsuit is so important. That's incredible. Well, now, there have been other lawsuits, obviously, dealing with these kinds of issues where, you know, the plaintiff, like Emily, uh, is trying to do, actually has prevailed. Does that make any difference in particular when you were filing this particular suit? Yes, you're exactly right. Courts across the country have have held that creative professionals like Emily have a First Amendment constitutional right to choose the messages that they promote and the artwork that they create and what and the messages that they don't promote and the artwork they don't create. And that applies uh, across the board to artists like videographers uh, who create videos, uh, calligraphers who use the hand, handwritten text to create messages, and even other photographers. Um, and it also shows that uh, laws like these have been weaponized across the country to um, force people who are creative professionals to uh, create uh, messages and promote ideas that violate their religious beliefs. So, for example, in Colorado, Colorado is using a similar law and has used a similar law to force uh, Jack Phillips to create messages uh, contrary to his beliefs. And right. the same has happened in Washington with Baronel Stetsman yep. and uh, in Kentucky with Blaine Adamson. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're seeing more and more of these kinds of suits. So we had talked about the violation of the First Amendment. I know one of the other things that you're saying as a legal argument is this is also a violation of the 14th Amendment. How is that the case? That's right. The government has a responsibility to pass laws that normal people can understand and that normal people can know when they're violating the law and when they're not. But New York's, there's a provision in New York's law that is so confusing that the, the average American couldn't know whether they were uh, violating the law or not. And, uh, and, and this is one of the reasons that Emily cannot uh, promote her religious beliefs on her website. The law is so confusing that it's unclear uh, how it applies to Emily's uh, religious speech. Well, that's insane. So do you have any examples in New York of them coming down on other types of speech? For example, people have raised this issue. Would you make a Jewish baker put a swastika on a cake? These kinds of things, these extreme examples where they say, well, wait a minute, why are you going after Christians and saying that they can't convey their own beliefs in their places of business when you obviously would not go after other sorts of people who didn't want to convey messages? I mean, I think that's a very strong argument. How well does that tend to play out in court? 
Sure. Well, um, Letitia James, who's the Attorney General of New York and one of the defendants in this case, has filed briefs in support of, uh, of laws that uh, compel speech. And we have another case that's currently pending in the Tenth Circuit, which is in Colorado, uh, involving a website designer who, cre- who uses her artistic ability to create websites. And Letitia James has said, just as, as New York's law applies, has said that the government uh, – uh, uh, Letitia James has said that the, the, the First Amendment does not protect artists who create those types of, of websites. And that's absolutely wrong. The First Amendment allows – creative professionals like Emily, like website designers, like the other artists that I've mentioned, uh, to use their artwork to promote messages that are consistent with their uh, religious beliefs. Right. So where do things go from here now that you have filed suit in the Western District of New York? uh, How do things proceed from here? We've, we've asked the court to uh, stop New York from enforcing its laws. The case is ongoing. And so we're hopeful that sometime over the next several months we'll be in front of the judge and to be able to explain to him all of the ways that New York's law violates Emily's First Amendment rights. Well, that's good. Now, she's declined, hasn't she, to several requests to photograph same-sex weddings? Has she been at all inundated the way Jack Phillips has been inundated <laughs> at times with uh, people who are really trying to maybe uh, take advantage of the situation? Has she had a lot of requests? She has had several requests that she's had to decline because of her religious beliefs. And again, that just shows the threat that she faces on a daily basis. Um, she's not able to operate her business uh, in a, without the threat of these penalties living overhead. And as I mentioned, the penalties are really severe. $100,000 fines, a jail time for up to a year, and other penalties that could ruin her business. And so uh, part of the reason that Emily filed this lawsuit was to, to ensure that she has the First Amendment constitutional right to operate her business consistent with her beliefs and to create messages uh, that promote the idea that marriage is between one man and one woman. Yeah, well, and it's amazing that they continue to try to call this discrimination when obviously what a lot of these clients that you've represented have objected to is a moral principle and and that's in violation of their dearly held religious beliefs as Christians, as you've pointed out. And I think this is going to be a very important case. In the meantime, she hasn't been fined at all thus far, right? Is she kind of protected from that as this lawsuit continues? That's correct. She's filed what's called a pre-enforcement lawsuit or a, a proactive lawsuit to be able to assert her First Amendment rights before she's exposed to these types of penalties. And Americans can challenge unjust laws before they actually face uh, a prosecution. And, and as I mentioned, that's especially important here because of the risk of jail time, amongst other penalties that she could uh, be exposed to. Unbelievable. Well, we will be keeping a close eye on this case. Brian Nyhart from Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much, Brian, for the update and God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks for being with us. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you miss the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I have to hand it to James O'Keefe and his team over at Project Veritas. They're doing the kind of journalism that networks used to do and newspapers used to do. And the contrast that we're seeing between what Project Veritas is doing in exposing the truth and presenting it to the public and the propaganda that we're seeing coming from outlets like CNN is becoming more and more striking and really points out how far they have fallen in the mainstream media from what their job is supposed to be. And I don't know how many people can even stay in the business anymore. I know if I had to do it all over again and I was going into newspapers as I did when I first got out of college, I don't think I would do it today. And not only because most newspapers are out of business, that's only part of it. Anyway, let's get into this because this is really, really good stuff. This is James O'Keefe and his Project Veritas staff going after somebody at CNN, in this case, CNN technical director, Charlie Chester. Now, Charlie Chester did an undercover video, unbeknownst to him, and talked about things like how CNN got Joe Biden elected by how they conducted the coverage and talked about how they were able to make sure Trump didn't get reelected and and even admitted that the network was putting out propaganda. Let's listen to a little of this. Cut one. I think we got him through this term. We would always show shots of him jogging. Him in aviator shades and like, a, like you paint him as a young geriatric. We were creating a story there that we didn't know anything about. You know, we were, so that's, that's, I think that's propaganda. That's propaganda. At the outset there, he was discussing Joe Biden. We'll make him look like a young geriatric. We'll put him out there in his, you know, the shot of him in those nice aviator glasses. Yet we notice that's exactly how you guys in the left are covering Joe Biden and all the stories you're not doing that are screaming to be done right now because nobody but nobody with half a brain believes that Joe Biden is actually the one with the hand on the tiller right now. And that is incredibly dangerous for the security of the United States, by the way, at a time when Putin is making some very troubling, menacing moves against Ukraine, when China is 
is expanding its reach and its military might. And we've got Joe Biden unable to figure out how to get up a flight of stairs. And I'm not trying to be mean by saying that. He's just too old to be president and he's too feeble to be president. And he's not all there. And we all know this. But the left doesn't care. What do they care if America goes down the drain? That's their goal anyway. Congratulations. You helped accelerate the demise of your own country, the freest, most prosperous, most blessed country in the history of the world. And you guys accelerated the demise of that wonderful nation that gave you the freedoms and the opportunity to do what you're doing. It's gross. It's just disgusting. Now, let's listen to Charlie Chester talk about CNN manipulating news about President Trump in order to get him out of office. And then... He also reveals what they plan to cover next to manipulate you. Listen to cut two. Trump uh, was, I don't know, like his hand was shaking or whatever. Like that. We brought in like so many medical people to like all tell a story that like it was all speculation. That he was like neurological damage, like that, that he was losing it. He's unfit to, you know, whatever. We were, we were creating a story there that we didn't know anything about, you know. We were, I think there's just like a COVID fatigue. So like whenever a new story comes up, they're going to latch onto it. They've already announced inner office that once the public is will be open to it we're going to start focusing mainly on climate it's our it's going to be our focus like uh, like our, our focus was to get trump out of office right without saying it that's what it was right so our next thing is going to be for climate change awareness the head of the network like just who's that is that zucker zucker yeah climate change is going to be the next COVID thing to see We're going to, we're going to hone in. Focus. Our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was. Well, there you have it. CNN, technical director, admitting that they manipulated the news. They brought on medical people to speculate about what could potentially be medically wrong with President Trump at a time when his hand was shaking. And he said, we were creating a story there. We were creating a story there. Our focus was to get Trump out of office. Well, that's interesting. That would be intentional defamation, wouldn't it? It'd be interesting to see if the Trump lawyers could come up with some reason to go after them legally and finally take down fake news. I would love it. James O'Keefe actually went on record as saying he is going to sue CNN for defamation because Anna Cabrera, one of the hosts over there, he said lied about them and said that Project Veritas was being taken down for misinformation, which is completely false. So they're going forward with legal action. I hope a lot of people do. I hope Matt Gates does it as well. Irrespective of what's going on with him, the congressman, they mentioned that Congressman Gates uh, it was somebody that they wanted to manipulate coverage of because they needed to get him out of the way because he presented a problem for the Democratic Party due to the fact that he was a conservative. So you have all kinds of people who are mentioned by this loose lip Charlie Chester. Now, the, the issue of we're going to go after climate change next, it just shows you how intentional they are about manipulating public opinion. They're not concerned about news at all. Take news out of it. Don't even call them fake news because there's no news going on here. It's all propaganda. It's propaganda, and they are on the record now admitting it. Now, let's go to the issue of COVID, because this has just come out as well. Again, Charlie Chester has been talking about all of these things, and he said COVID is actually gangbusters with ratings for CNN. This is cut three. 
Sad news doesn't do well with ratings, you know, like, if you can get someone in passion, that does really well with ratings. Sad news, back to back to back, doesn't do really well unless it affects them directly. COVID, gangbusters with ratings, right? Which is why we constantly have the death toll on the side, which I have a major problem with that we're tallying how many people die every day. Because I've even looked at it and be like, look at it and be like, let's make it higher. Like, why isn't it high enough, you know, today? Like, it would make our point better if it was higher. And I'm like, what am I rallying for? That's a problem yeah. that we're doing, you know? Yeah, it is a problem that you're doing it. He's even admitting there that they put up the death numbers from COVID on the screen, and he sometimes wishes those numbers were higher because it would be better for ratings. These people are sickos. At least he had a little bit of an attack of conscience, at least from what he indicated there to the undercover Project Veritas reporter. But can you imagine going through life like this? Oh, man, I really wish that it would bleed a little bit more. Then we could make it lead even more than we are right now. So let's manipulate people. Let's make sure that we manipulate people, because let me tell you something. In the final analysis, it's not only disgusting for the manipulation and for the propaganda and and the dereliction of duty as journalists, but they also think their viewers are idiots. That's what they think. We have to manipulate you because otherwise you won't do what we think. You won't go along with what we want to accomplish in this society. It's sick. Really sick. And then he discusses how the head of the network over at CNN directs this kind of coverage. Cut four. Like this special red phone ring. Yeah. And they pick it up. And it's like the head of the network being like, there's nothing that you're doing right now that makes me want to stick. Put the numbers back up because that's the most enticing thing that we have. So put it back up. So like things like that are constantly talked about. I mean, there's no such thing as um, unbiased news. Any reporter on CNN. What they're actually doing is they're telling the person what to say. It's always like leading them in a direction before they even open their mouth. And the only people that we will have on the air, for the most part, are people that have a proven track record of taking the bait. All manipulation, all propaganda, all the time. And when he says there's no such thing as unbiased news, I must say that is not true. It is true that most reporters have opinions on things, but you don't have to put your bias in your stories. I didn't. There were a lot of reporters I worked with who didn't. You couldn't tell their positions on things by the way they covered the news. That used to be a normal thing. And because CNN has mastered the art of propaganda, they don't believe that unbiased news is even possible. Hang it up. Go into another field. Because you're disgracing journalism. It's just incredible to me. And the funniest part was James O'Keefe put out another video going to the Pancake House where these interviews took place. And the reporter had left to go to the bathroom ostensibly. And James O'Keefe walks in, confronts Charlie Chester. And Charlie Chester says, oh, I don't want to talk to you. Hey, by the way, put on your mask. You're standing less than six feet away from me. Put on your mask. He didn't have a mask either. And then he drove away in a car and the waitress came over and James O'Keefe said, oh, did you wait on this guy? She says, yeah, he was really rude. He was really rude. I didn't like him very much. He was not a very nice guy. And James O'Keefe says, hey, would you like a job at Project Veritas? And she said, yeah. He said, all right. Well, as a result of all this, we not only got Charlie Chester on the record embarrassing CNN beyond recognition and potentially opening them up for more legal action, but we got a new employee out of it as well. (laughs) 
So it's a good day for Project Veritas. God bless them. I really appreciate what they're doing. It's actual journalism as opposed to the garbage that's coming out of these networks and some of these newspapers that should be used as birdcage liner. Nobody should be reading them. Hey, help us out. Open the floodgates. Bibles for Africa, our wonderful campaign with Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible, and that number will be doubled because of a limited matching gift. The number to call, 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.